Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Wheelchair Activist. This is a podcast hosted by me, Emma Vogelman, where I interview some amazing disabled people and some allies of the disabled community. Today, I'm very excited to be interviewing Emma Lewell Buck, the MP for South Shields. Emma is one of five disabled MPs, and I'm so excited to be talking to her about what her disability means to her and how it impacts her day-to-day life as an MP. I can't wait to hop into this conversation. I want to make sure that however long I've got in this place, that I make sure that I'm a voice for people who, you know, quite frankly, don't get their voice heard often enough. When you stand up in the House of Commons, it's quite a powerful thing. And I said, I wonder when I'll never be nervous. And they said, you know, the day you're not nervous is the day you should leave, because it means you've stopped caring. It would be good if, you know, political parties had somebody who was who was trained and understood the, the different needs of people with disabilities so that they could encourage more people with disabilities to stand, because I think, you know, out of out of the few of us who are in Parliament, we've shown that we can do the job. Amazing. Emma, thank you so much for joining us on the Wheelchair Activist. I know how incredibly busy you are, so thank you so much for making the time to chat to me today. Thank you for having me, Emma. Um, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and who you are? Yeah, so my name is Emma Lowell-Buck. I'm the Member of Parliament for South Shields. I've been the MP there since 2013. I'm the first ever MP to represent South Shields who was actually born there. And I'm the first, first ever female MP for South Shields as well. Amazing. So a little bit of a trailblazer all around the head. Well, also um, interesting, people always find this interesting, so I might as well throw it in there anyway, is my great, great, great grandfather invented the lifeboat in a parish church in South Shields, where he was the the parish clerk. Oh, wow. Yeah. But then, typical of my family, he died um, without patenting it and a drunken pauper. So... (laughs) And apparently they said that he, he had a foul mouth as well. Oh my goodness, what a fun family history. Um, So I have this big question that Mm -hmm. I ask all of my guests before we get into your career as an MP, but what does disability mean to you? Um, It's just something that, you know, I've got dyspraxia and to me, it's just something that's part of me. It's part of who I am and I've learned to accept it and you know that it just it just it's just me it's I don't know what else to say really um mm. yeah I think I think that that's really important though that it just happens to be another part of your identity and mm-hmm. it's part of you know what makes you you and along with all of those other really amazing attributes that we all have it just happens to be another component um yeah because it doesn't, you know, we, we are all different. Um, but I think when it comes to some some differences are are highlighted more by society than others. And I think that's that's where that's where it becomes, you know, where, where you get discrimination or where you get policies from governments that are seen to discriminate people um, instead of, you know, everyone having a level playing field. And how do you feel that? comes across in the 
House of Commons because you're one of, I think it's only five disabled MPs. So how do you mm-hmm. feel that your disability has sort of impacted your career there? Um, I suppose just, I mean, Parliament... Um, I don't know if you've ever been before, Emma, or if any of your listeners have, but mm. it's a pretty old-fashioned place. Um, and just the, the layout physically of the building as well doesn't lend itself. So, you know, part part of my condition is that, you know, I struggle with left and right. I struggle with directions, um, especially if I'm in a hurry or if it's hot like it is today. You know, I, mm. I don't think as clearly. And Parliament, you have to be in lots of places all the time, very quickly, yet the whole place is like a maze. So, you know, um, as a dyspraxic, to give me a map, you might as well give me a blank sheet of paper. But then I'm told, right, you need to be here, here and here. And you've got like a five minute gap to get to each one. Well, the parliamentary estate's quite massive and one wrong turn and you're down a rabbit warren and you don't know where you are <laughs> and, you're, and then you're mm. in the So it's, it's things like that. It's just not, it doesn't lend itself well to that kind of thing. Um, and then also just in the chamber, like the House of Commons chamber is very noisy. There's lots happens. So I get very easily, again, because of my dyspraxia, I get very easily distracted. So people will say, you know, I, I always have notes when I'm in the chamber. And sometimes even if I don't look at them, I need them because if I get distracted, I don't want to then lose what I'm trying to say. Mm. So, and speeches we have to we we get timed so as well as having to concentrate on what I'm saying concentrate on anybody who might want to ask me a question in the middle of that then there's lots of noise and lots of people moving around either side of you sometimes in front of you and then you're having to look at a clock as well and make sure that you're keeping in time with everything you should be keeping in time with there's a lot going on there for someone who's got dyspraxia to, to kind of keep track of. So mm. it, I, I suppose so. I, I, I don't think I perform. In fact, I think not being, I think I perform better than some people in the chamber, but that's because I really concentrate and I prepare quite thoroughly because I know, I know that I find it harder than some people and it also takes it out of me quite a bit. So I'm not one of those who would make six and seven speeches a week. I'll make maybe two or three and that's enough for me. But I think that's okay because it's about quality, not quantity, isn't it? Absolutely. And honestly, that sounds like a lot for anyone to deal Mm. with, with that time pressure. And of course it's televised and it's, you know, there's sort of, pomp and circumstance but that comes with being in the house of commons and sort of the pressure that you must feel i can imagine that's difficult to deal with even without any disability or impairment and did any of that potentially put you off wanting to become an mp um, to be honest, there are things that I didn't really know until I became an MP. And I think there's there's a lot of people in this place who um, spend their entire lives wanting to be MPs and spend their whole career working in jobs that will lend itself. So they may work for an MP or, or they might work for a political party or they may work for a trade union. So they're quite immersed in this place. First time I sort of set foot in, yeah, I'd always wanted to be an MP, but I just didn't think it would happen to me. I didn't think, mm. you know, I remember my nana used to say, 
politics isn't for the likes of us, Emma, and you you know, people like us don't get to to represent our communities. It just it was unheard of. You know, when I was younger, you'd watch the telly and nobody spoke like me or sounded like me. I was raising the issues I was raising. So the the fact that I actually made it here in itself is um something that I'm very proud of. But I didn't know the minutiae of the place like perhaps other MPs do because of that. And because I came in on a by-election, um, I'd never had an opportunity whilst I was a candidate to visit either and understand it. So basically it was all brand new to me, all of that. I knew I wanted to be an MP. I knew I wanted to represent my community. I didn't understand how the chamber operated though um, and how that worked mm. and how question times even work. Question times can be quite tricky you know, you've got to know when, you know, when you see people moving up and down, we call that bobbing. Sure. So, yeah. So when you see all of that going on, when you can do that, when you can't, what questions you can come in, what ones you can't. So if you see any early footage of me throughout like 2013 and 2014, I've always got a notebook by my side and I'm clocking what to do and writing the rules down because the rules aren't written down anyway. You oh, just wow. expect, yeah, you're expected just to, to know them or learn them whilst you're there. And I think because I've always been quite anxious because of my dyspraxia, I hate making a mistake. So I didn't want to do anything till I'd understood the rules. So I wrote them all down and I had this little red book with us permanently for about three or four years until oh, I, I love that. Them all. Yeah. <laughs> I find though, this is sometimes like I find it quite a common pressure amongst disabled people that I, it just sort of resonated with me what you were saying about, oh, you didn't want to get anything wrong. It, a lot of disabled people in the workplace can feel that they have to be exceptional just to prove themselves and just to be considered equal to their non-disabled peers. Was there any worry that if you did do something wrong, even if it had nothing to do with your disability, that, I don't know, that your disability might be blamed in some way? Um, I think because of, because of the disability, I've I always used to suffer. Well, I used to suffer from chronic um, low self-esteem and anxiety. I'm better now because I forced myself into situations um, that made me uncomfortable just to kind of prove I could do it. And now I'm okay with it. But I think I'm lucky that I'm in a job where I can talk about it because historically, when I was um, in all my previous jobs before, I used to work evenings and weekends and take work home just to prove I could keep up with everybody else. Um, and the reality is, though, I was actually doing more than anybody else. <laughs> so that's that's a strange thing. I was trying to prove myself so much, but I never told my employers, never told them. I never spoke openly about this until I became a member of parliament because I've been unemployed before and I was always scared of being on the dole or not having enough money to get by. So I never told anyone I just used to work harder to make sure that I was never going to be the one who ended up losing their job if there was cuts to come. And I was scared to say it, that I had that disability in case when they did make cuts, I was one of the first ones to go because unfortunately that is what it's like in a lot of workplaces, despite all the protective legislation that's out there. Most of us know that's still the case. It absolutely is. And I mean, it's... Again, this is a shared feeling amongst the community, and I'm sure that listeners will resonate with this. That that's incredibly sad, but it's not surprising that yeah. you felt that way. And I, you know, it's so interesting about disclosing disability because 
I I always say to people there is no right or wrong way or time to disclose your disability, but the amount of people I've spoken to who have an invisible disability that don't want to disclose it, Mm -hmm. even to their detriment, because they're so worried about the opinions of others, which, you know, it does have basis. It's not out of nowhere. Disabled people are routinely discriminated against in the workplace, particularly in hiring and firing decisions. But how has sort of your lived experience of disability, has it informed the way that you conduct yourself as an MP? I mean, obviously, your background is different to the quote-unquote, you know, typical politician, which I think is fantastic. I think there needs to be more people like that in in the chamber, but how has your disability informed what you do as an MP? I suppose I just, um, I've always, you know, um, I'm quite an angry person. I'm angry about lots of things. I was angry before I became an MP. That's probably part of the drive to get us here in the first place. Um, Sound, sounds like an Emma thing. At this yeah, point I, wonder, I, wonder, I wonder if we're all just like that. <laughs> probably. <laughs> so, you know, I, I just... I want to make sure that however long I've got in this place, that I make sure that I'm a voice for people who, you know, quite frankly, don't get their voice heard often enough. So if you look at some of the issues I tend to speak up about, I speak up a lot about um, people with disabilities. I speak up a lot for children in care. Um, It's basically the people who more often than not are, you know, a tick box or an afterthought in government policy. So, you know, they'll say, oh, yeah, we've got to, you know, I suppose an example is I remember when I was on our front bench for a while and they were introducing a new education paper. Not once did the, the Secretary of State introducing or the Minister introducing this legislation mention children with SEND. Not wow. once. So and it was only when I got up and said, had you forgotten about them? That they were like, oh, oh no, no, wait, there is a section there. So, you know, it, it's that kind of thing. It's like you constantly have to, and to constantly remind them as well that people with disabilities are not just about benefits. I get so angry that disabilities is always in DWP question time. Mm. Why, why is that? <laughs> why, why is that not in every question time? Why is it always... You know, questions about people with disabilities are always in the Department for Work and Pensions question time. People with disabilities are much more than the benefits they receive. I couldn't agree more, to be honest. I think it it is really frustrating. There's sort of this dichotomy of the way that people think of disabled people. It's either a Paralympian or a benefits grounder. But, you know, and while there are some truly incredible Paralympians, of course, you know, Mm -hmm. there are lots of other disabled people who are just, you know, doing normal day to day things and to be excluded from those other conversations is really difficult. And I think it's great that you are saying, what about disabled Mm -hmm. people in those conversations? It's again, sad, but not surprising that, you know, send children are Mm -hmm. left out of those conversations. Um, Yeah. But it's it's really wonderful to have someone trying to raise that profile. And within your constituencies, you mentioned that you didn't disclose your disability till you became an MP. Did, was that something that you disclosed to 
the potential constituent when you were running? No, it was actually when I was elected, um, my researcher, and this, this is everyone finds this quite funny, but my researcher who I just hired said, did I read somewhere that you've got dyspraxia? And I think it must have been just like hidden in some articles somewhere or something. It was never made a big deal of. And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, oh, well, he said, there's, there's like a, a foundation, a dyspraxia foundation. There's lots of people who have that. And I was like, really? I said, I didn't know this. Because I'd just always got my head down and got on with my work. I thought, well, mm. you know, I've got this. I'll just get on. And he was like, yeah, there's loads of people. So I met with the Dyspraxia Foundation and I've stayed, you know, incredibly close to them and friends with them ever since. And they introduced me to this whole world of people who I just instantly connected with and felt like I, I belonged with. <laughs> it's really, it was really lovely. I remember getting quite tearful and thinking all these years, I didn't know there was other people. Like my family just used to say, oh, it's just Emma, she's quirky and she's a bit different. But actually mm. we didn't know it was an actual condition. And then to meet all these people and find out that actually loads of people have dyspraxia. It's it was it was really nice. Really nice. There's such power, isn't there, in that solidarity and that understanding from other disabled people what your life is like and feeling so understood it's such a beautiful thing yeah because there's something about just connecting with someone where you don't have to you don't have to explain the minutiae of it you don't have to go through it you know the amount of people in house it was you've got dyspraxia what's that and then and it's a hard condition to describe to begin with and then you describe it to them and they'll laugh it off and go oh I think I might have that and I'm like no you're not understanding you're not understanding it's actually quite Mm -hmm. you know it is something in my brain that is quite fundamentally different it's not just that you know I get confused between left and right or you know I sometimes you know misspeak or whatever it's it's a lot more it's a lot more to it than that so yeah yeah, I I really hear that. I think for so many disabilities, some people try to do that. And I don't know if it's trying to be helpful, but it's sort of, it's sort of not. Um yeah, it can it depends on how it's delivered, doesn't it? I mm. think with some people, if you know them, you know they're just trying to be kind. But then with other people, it can seem a bit patronizing or a bit insulting. It's 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 a very hard one to Mm. kind of judge isn't it um it would be better I suppose if people just kind of said oh you know okay I didn't know about that or Mm. or whatever instead of oh yeah that's me too (laughs) when it when it's not (laughs) Mm. how has this support been for you since you've become an MP I mean I know when obviously I've only visited Westminster Mm. as a visitor and they have those you know guide to take you around you don't accidentally end up in some meeting that you're not meant to be in but (laughs) you know is is there any support for like helping you navigate around or you know anything that's been done to try and lessen the barriers that you face not really but then to be fair to parliament I haven't particularly asked because um, I was I was 27 when I found out I had dyspraxia. So I'd kind of modified my life and just sure. accepted that if there's things I want to do, then I have to prepare more 
I have to get up earlier in the morning. I have to be more organized than anybody else. So I kind of just, again, came here, got my head down and, and, and got on with it. But I'm sure if I did ask, but I, again, I don't know what I could ask because I can't ask them to change the layout of the building. I can't, I can't ask mm. them to, you know, have someone help me to get to every meeting because that would just be, it just wouldn't happen. Um, so I don't really know what, what I could ask for. Um, I suppose maybe some help in the chamber with the counting down of meetings, but I don't even know, I don't even know what that would look like. Do, do you know, I, I really don't know yeah. how, how they, how they could, to be honest. Um, it, it's, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? I'm sure there is a way, but I've never thought of any while I've been here. I've just found ways myself of, of coping. And, and sometimes, you know, I end up like missing out on stuff. So a lot of colleagues um, socialise or, or go out of an evening or, or go for coffees and, or go for a drink or something to eat if I hear for late thoughts. But I tend to isolate myself quite a lot, but that's just because I need longer to prepare for things. Um, I need more time to make sure that I'm ready for the next day. And I think if I go off and, and socialise for a bit, then that's cutting into my performance the next day. So I don't want to do that. I think that that's really fair. I think, you know, I've come across so many disabled people who really just don't know what adjustments could be made. I think there's mm. a purposely vague phrase, reasonable adjustment, but what's yeah. reasonable can really vary depending on where you are. And I, you know, I really here in, you know, your job, it's such a historic role yeah. and obviously a very historic place. What what adaptations in theory could be made? Um I'll be really interested when this episode goes out to see if people comment with um, suggestions. Uh, oh, if I have any, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll take it because the speaker here is, is a really good man. Um, and if you take things to them, they do listen. So, you know, fingers crossed, if your listeners can come up with anything, then yeah, do send them in. <laughs> oh, well, that, that is a task for anyone listening, particularly those with lived experience of dyspraxia, because I would also be really interested because I think when you're disabled I mean even you just said with your background your mm -hmm. nan said to you oh that job isn't for the likes of us but I think so not only do so far too many people think that who would be amazing politicians yeah. but I think particularly disabled people I mean I know you know at this present moment there are only five disabled MPs yourself included and thinking about that really just makes you feel un sort of just not represented and how can you see yourself doing that job when you don't see anyone like you doing mm -hmm. that job so sort of you know I guess my question is you know what can disabled people do or what should they be aware of or anything like that that would potentially make them think oh maybe I could do that I mean I think um it's incumbent on political parties because the, the process um more often than not if you're going to stand for parliament you're not going to stand as an independent you're going to stand for a political party and I think it's incumbent on political parties to make sure they have the right things in place to help you through that process so um in my party for example the first thing you get is a spreadsheet with everyone's details on well 
if you're not used to using spreadsheets and you're dyspraxic, that's like, you know, all, all kinds of nightmares are over top the minute, you know, things like that are just unhelpful. So it would be good if, you know, political parties had somebody who was who was trained and understood the, the different needs of people with disabilities so that they could encourage more people with disabilities to stand. Because I think, you know, out of out of the few of us who are in Parliament, we've shown that we can do the job. Um, some of us better than people who don't have, you know, so there is there is no reason why more people shouldn't be here. But I think for me, it's more about the process within political parties from the outset. Um, and, you know, you're expected to canvas, you're expected to go and knock on doors. Well, that's not always easy for people. You know, spending hours knocking on people's doors and asking for their vote is quite you know, a difficult thing to do for some people. So there's, 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 there's things that parties need to look at a bit more to try and help the initial process, because I think the initial process is what could put you off. If you're told, he has a really complicated spreadsheet, there's a thousand members and you you need to go and ask them all for, your, for their vote. Um, and there's another candidate who's asked to do the same, yet they don't have anything, you know, that yet, yet they're able to do that a bit easier. And you're, you're already at a disadvantage. It's going to put you off from the outset. Has that changed at all since when you first got elected to now do now? Um, not from what I've seen or heard. No, no. I think, um, and this is not, you know, this is no criticism of my party or any other political party. I just think that they've just not, I just don't think it's thought about enough. I really don't. I don't think it's thought about enough. And I think, Sometimes there's things like, oh, yes, we're, we're inclusive. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. But it doesn't actually drill down to the reality of, of the process that you're going through and how, how, how and the, the stuff that you need to, to make that, you know, fair, basically. I, I, I'm being complicated with what I'm saying, but I think you get what I'm saying. I'm, I messed it up a bit there, but I think you get the point. Yeah, no, I absolutely understand what you mean. And just even yeah. as you were... Talking about canvassing, I think, you know, my immediate thought was, oh, I'm a wheelchair user. I couldn't possibly do that because how do you, unless you have someone with you, which it brings in a whole nother kettle of fish, mm-hmm. but how do you do that? How do you go and knock on people's door or, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. um, you know, whatever else it may be? And it, it can be really daunting process um for mm. for everyone i think you know funding as well is a really big issue particularly mm. for disabled people who already face extra costs and sort of all of those things that get launched you know launched into this um, yeah yeah because to be a candidate costs you know you're not elected you're a candidate so you know you're spending a lot of your time away from your job some people leave their jobs to campaign so you know, there's all there's all of those things as well to think about. So it's not it's not. And I mean, I I racked up a lot of debt on credit cards when I stood. And that I mean that in itself sounds oh gosh, that's a bit that's a bit daunting. But you know, it there I definitely agree with you that there needs to be more support for disabled mm. people who are interested in standing because it's only then that you're able to get that representation and be able to see yourself doing the job yeah I mean I suppose it's like you know if you look at um parliament you know I look at pictures around this place and it's just the chamber old old pictures or photos and it's just full of men 
in, in men in suits and I look around now and there's women in there and you know there's people with disabilities it's, it's starting to slowly catch up with society not massively but slowly and I just think there's there's always more we can do but I think we're definitely you know we're, we're moving in the right direction just it's very slow in parliament it's not it's not fast moving place so you mentioned sort of the stereotypical politician man in suit um who were your role models when you were thinking that this might be a job that you want to do was there anyone who particularly resonated with you um I think my, my my biggest role model was my gran she was never a politician she should have been though um my gran was um really like she was just really brave and courageous and again she would never have described herself as political at all you know politics wasn't something that you know like I said people like us did but if you look at the amount of times she stood up for people fought for people that was politics she staged a um a sit-in at our local town hall to get my mum and dad a house so oh, wow. you know, yeah so she was she was one of those but she never saw that as politics she just saw that as doing the right thing <laughs> So she never made the link that that was actually a really political thing to do. So she was she was my role model. She was always just really brave, really really ballsy and tough, and would just and if she saw anyone being treated badly, she'd stand up to someone else and and fight for them. I love that. I think she sounds like an incredible person. But I think people don't always recognize that it's. The little fights as well that mm-hmm. are politics. I mean, obviously, you are uh, an MP who, you know, votes on national issues, but you also serve your constituents. So mm-hmm. sort of, can you tell us a little bit about what the differences are between those two areas of your job? Because I think people people generally know the voting on mm-hmm. bills and the House of Commons but what yeah. else is it that you do so I've always I always said from day one that you know my friends and my community I would be a conduit I'd be their voice in the chamber so every single thing pretty much that I raise comes from them you know I go out and campaign and door knock and do street stores and ring constituents I speak to constituents even when I'm here every single day of the week so I use what they tell me in the chamber so if some legislation comes up and they've raised something that's an issue, then I'll put an amendment down to that to, to make a difference to them. So I always inform everything I do through them because I'm, 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 their, I'm their voice. You know, I, I, I'm here to represent them, not me. And, you know, obviously I'm involved in other things. I'm on select committees and there's other big bits of legislation. But more often than not, if you look at my speaking record, I'm always talking about a constituent or I am talking about something that will benefit a constituent because that, that to me is the job. And have any of your constituents had, well, I suppose you feel any of your constituents have perhaps reached out to you in a different way, but given your background or given your lived experience of disability, because what, what I've noticed in my work in the charity sector is a lot of the time, People don't know what they can go to their MP about. People think that they're this very far removed person who has a fancy house in London and, you know, doesn't know what's going on. But do you feel that maybe your constituents view you very differently to that? 
Um, I think because I always grew up, I grew up in South Tyneside, which so my constituency is part of that borough. So I grew up in in the neighbouring constituency, Jarrow. So people knew me anyway. You know, I, I I had friends and family in the constituency. I was already part of the community. So very few people viewed me as that separate entity anyway. And for those that did, you know, I I live there. I go I go for jogs there. I go swimming there. I go to the park. I go to Asda. You know, I do everything. So I'm there all the time. I'm in everyone's face. And, you know, people, people wander around when I'm shopping and chat to us. So I don't think there's ever been that disconnect. But at first, when I first got elected, people were shocked at that because they were used to their MP being a bit distant and someone, like you say, quite quite fancy and quite special. And then I come along and it's just, you know, oh, what are you doing in here? And I'm like, well, I'm doing my shopping. I'm like, oh. And so I've, I've worked over the nine years I've been the MP to break down those barriers and just say to people, you know what? I'm just... I'm just like you. I'm just doing my dream job and I'm very lucky to be your voice. So come to me about anything and everything. And I keep pushing that message out there. And, you know, if anyone stops me in the street, I'll always stop and give them time because that, that's the job again. I wish all MPs did that. I think <laughs> I, I wish that people felt so welcomed by their MP because, like I said, people don't realize what their MP can do you know sometimes it just takes a letter from an mp to get someone to do something that they should already be doing but it's having that voice and having that advocate that is so so important and i think particularly for disabled people who might face you know systematic discrimination or you know systematic problems that make their everyday life so much harder than it needs to be having a you know a little bit of weight behind your argument can sometimes really make the difference. I um this is you know really different and might seem quite trivial, but I um was getting a lot of parking fines at my local mm-hmm. train station because they weren't oh. registering my blue badge. Um, oh and, I've come across this before with yeah and and I yeah I well, me being me again this is why I think it's an Emma thing. I got angry <laughs> and got angry and refused to pay them but I um contacted my MP because I thought this is a systematic problem. It's not me. It's the it's this you know registration system not recognizing I am a blue badge holder and that's why I get parking free and it ended up being resolved with one email from my MP's office and the problem never happened again. So, you know, it's it's something that seems really small and something that your MP may not be able to fix or do anything about. But when you're given the time and the space, it really can help. I mean, I always say there's something, you know, it's great being an MP and because those two little letters after your name get things done for your constituents. But then it also tells me there's something fundamentally, something fundamentally wrong in our country that people only act when they get a letter from an MP. They should do it anyway. They, they shouldn't have to, it shouldn't get to that point, but it does. And the amount of times, again, I've had constituents have been going round and round circles with something, they come to see me and it's solved within five minutes. So I always say to them, don't you deal with the stress, let us take it and let us deal with it. Let me and my team, because we can solve it. And more often than not, we do. But that's purely because we send a letter with MP on the end of it, mm. my name in it. And that's wrong because that proves all along that organisation 
or that person could have done it they just didn't bother again sad but not surprising mm-hmm. it's it's so frustrating and yeah. I know so many disabled people who will really resonate with that feeling mm-hmm. passed around um So, you know, do contact your MP if you're listening to this and you think that they may just may be able to help you. Yeah, I think people are shocked at what we can help with. Mm. So someone just said to me this weekend, she went, so so what can you help with again? And I was like, well, literally anything, anything and everything. The only thing I can't do is get involved in legal cases that are ongoing or, you know, represent you in court because we've got that separation of the judiciary and parliament for very obvious reasons. So, but outside of that, if you're my constituent, I, do, I can represent you and do pretty much anything for you. And I'll always treat me and my team will always try our best to get a good result. And I think people don't realise that. And they'll say, you know, people, people in my community are always really hesitant. They're like, oh, I didn't want to bother you. I know you're dead busy. And I'm like, no, that that is what my job is. I should be busy because you're asking me stuff. That's how it works. Mm. <laughs> but people are always a bit reticent sometimes still. And I'm like, no, no, that, that's what I'm here for. I feel like I need to move to South Shields now. <laughs> but no, I think that that's... You're very welcome, Emma. <laughs> yeah, but I think that that's wonderful. And, you know, it, it must feel so wonderful for your constituents to feel heard and represented. And so sort of on that, I'm not sure if it, you know, if this will be the example, but what would you say that you are the most proud of? Oh, wow. I think probably um, in in my time as an MP, um, I suppose I'm most proud of getting elected in the first place. (laughs) But then I think in my time as a member of parliament, probably um, I I helped set up um, like a local network of food banks and food providers to, to make sure that people in my community didn't go without and before the government introduced, you know, the holiday activities, food money, before all of that, um, I was part of a team in Parliament who helped set up a national charity. And we crowdfunded through that charity to give money to my local charities in my network to help feed kids over the summer, over the Easter, over Christmas, and just make sure that that nobody went without. So it's not necessarily something I'm proud of. It's a team effort, but um, it's something I'm incredibly proud to have been part of and helped make happen. And this year, I'm very excited. We're about to launch it. Um, I mean, I'm sad we're having to do it. It's wrong, but I'm pleased we've eventually got off the ground. We're going to have a bus that goes around um, around housing estates and instead of kind of people having to come for advice or go to a food bank, there'll be food there, there'll be a community shop on the bus, there'll be advice, and, and I'm setting up um, a library on it for, for kids as well. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that, actually launching and being mm. out and about in the community. I think that that's really amazing. And, you know, with my, you know, disability charity sector, how I have, you know, the first thing I thought of was, how accessible that's going to make support to mm-hmm. disabled people who may struggle with yeah. public transport or, you know, getting the care to get out and about or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. It brings the help to them, which is so, so important. Yeah, that's what we're going to try and do. Um, it's been a long time. It's been a long time in the planning and mm. we got donated a massive bus. Um, it's been getting refitted out and it's about to come back to us later this year. 
ready for us to do well, ready for the, the partners I work with locally to do what they need to do to it. And then it'll be out and about on estates in South Shields. Oh, that sounds really amazing. Mm. I mean, so, like I say, mm. I'm, I'm sad and I'm angry with the government that this has to happen because mm. people people should have enough to, to live on. But the reality is they don't. And with inflation soaring, it's going to get worse for people. So, you know, in the absence of a government that is going to do anything about it, then as a community and, you know, as the MP, we've come together and done something about it ourselves. Yeah, I think it's it's sort of, it must be quite difficult that you, yes, you sit within the House of Commons, but, you know, sort of that frustration that the government isn't doing as much as it should be or that these problems are still going on when they could be, in some cases, very easily fixed. It it must feel very frustrating to see that. I think that's why I'm angry a lot, Emma, as well, Mm. because, you know, there are solutions there. There's things that can be done, but they don't prioritise them or they don't see it as something, you know, and, and then you see that lots of money is wasted. You know, there's loads of money being wasted on a royal yacht, yet kids are going to school hungry because school breakfasts are being cut. I just don't understand that level of priority. Um, mm. Surely it should be, you know, one of the most basic things of any state is to make sure people are are fed and cared for and looked after before you move on to anything else. And pumping money into royal yachts and, and ridiculous things like that is just not, not a good use of the nation's finances. There are going to be a lot of angry comments that, at that and quite rightly yeah. so you know that priority setting is appalling yeah yeah I mean it's you know I'm I'm not against a royal yacht if we had loads mm. of money to spend on it we don't and I think actually um the royal family have said themselves they don't even want it do you know what I mean they're not pushing for it so it's like well this is this is the it's about priorities and it's about you know who do you want to spend your money on if you're in government and surely it should be the people who you govern should come first. Mm, and particularly those who are the most, you know, strongly impacted mm. by, you know, the cost of living crisis that yeah. we're in now or have already, mm. you know, had to, you know, face extra costs of uh, almost £600 a month okay. just to achieve the same standard of living, which, you know, disabled people have to do. It's... And it's people, mm. sorry Emma, I just it, it just it just gets me angry because people will say, oh, you know, um, they should get a job. Well, actually, most people do have do, who yeah. are on benefits do work. Mm. <laughs> it's the fact that you know, low low pay and insecure work hasn't been tackled. Mm. You know, pay hasn't kept up with inflation even before this recent rise. So sorry, uh, rant over Emma. I'll yeah. be quiet. <laughs> no, no, I mean, uh, wait, I. I I just completely agree. And, you know, I know that there'll be a lot of disabled people who are on various benefits like employment support allowance. And, you know, there are limits on how much you can work. So the accusation of, oh, just work, just get a job and then you'll be fine is, you know, there's a lot more to it. And I completely agree. It's very glib and it's very it's very ignorant. Um, My dad um, was unemployed when, when I was younger. And that was through no fault of his own. But then there was a welfare state that, you know, propped you up a little bit and helped you through until you got your next job. And 
my dad was a real grafter. He loved work. He always wanted to be in work. So I get really, I've been unemployed myself as well. And I remember trawling, trawling the streets, you know, going to restaurants, bars, you know, 10 hours a day looking for work. And for now, people in this government to turn around and say, oh, the best route out of poverty is get a job, just get a job. Well, you know, it's not as easy as that. Um, You know, the jobs aren't there. Or, you know, that it's just it's it's not as simplistic as that. And I wish mm. they wouldn't keep saying that because it's demeaning and it undermines the efforts that people actually do go to in this country to get work. I can I couldn't agree more. Mm-hmm. And so what you know, given everything that we've covered, but you know, if there's anything that we haven't, mm-hmm. what would you say is the hardest barrier that you've had to overcome? And that could be, you know within your time as an MP or before that? I think it's always been my um, lack of confidence and self-esteem, which comes from my dyspraxia. So when I was younger, growing up, I always knew that things were a bit different for me, but I never knew why, because I didn't have a name for it and I didn't know it was a condition. So I used to isolate myself sometimes or like be quite introvert and really shy and frightened to speak or frightened to like, you know, kind of put my hand up in class or whatever because I was so so scared of getting things wrong or embarrassing myself or looking stupid and I think even to this day that still affects us so if I do um see this interview I'll probably listen back to this a hundred times and go, oh I wish I hadn't said that oh no I, I overanalyze everything um if I do a television interview my first thought is always that was hideous if I do a speech somewhere there could be a room full of people clapping there's one person not clapping that's the person I see all the time. And I think I've just accepted that that's who I am now, but I just need to keep going and, and keep doing my job because I do get I do get nice feedback from my constituents and they're always happy that I'm trying to help them. And, and again, you know, they're who matter more to me than anything. So it's so annoying that the comments that are the easiest to believe are the negative ones as few as they are as opposed to the person who said that you were brilliant or amazing um you know it's it's so much harder to believe those people not because of them but just because of self-confidence and I think that that's such a problem for a lot of disabled people because you know society constantly makes us feel like we are less than we are not as good as you know because of the way that we're treated in a lot of ways or the way that you know the system treats us and it's really difficult not to internalize that yeah and I think that's what it is for me it's more about what's going on in my head all the time so people will say well you look confident you look okay and I'm like yeah but inside I'm always really nervous I'm always chewed up and I remember seeing a colleague in here um you know when you stand up in the House of Commons, it's quite a powerful thing, you know, um, to think I'm stood here in the House of Commons speaking. And I said, I wonder when I'll never be nervous. And they said, you know, the day you're not nervous is the day you should leave because it means you've stopped caring. If you're not nervous anymore, you don't care. And you should wow. care about everything you see and everything you do. And yeah, and even the most confident people, like MPs who've been here for decades, when I taught them, they'll say, they still get that flutter in the stomach when they stand up. So, wow! Don't believe what you see, yeah. Don't <laughs> believe what you see before you, because it's never, it's never really what's going on with people. So, what advice would you give to first your? Let's start with what advice would you give to your younger self? Um, stop being scared to be you. I think. 
Oh, I like that. <laughs> and what advice would you give to a disabled person listening to this who maybe is feeling a little bit more positive or a little bit more hopeful that this could be a career path for them? They could be an MP. What advice would you give them? I would say keep going and keep trying and reach out to people around you because I didn't get here on my own. I had a family and a team behind me. So, you know, use everything at your disposal if it's something you want and and keep going. And by all means, contact me if you want to have a chat. (laughs) That's really kind. Thank you so much, Emma. It's been a joy. (laughs) No, it's been such a pleasure speaking to you. And just thank you so much for giving up so much of your time um to chat to me i appreciate it so much i really enjoyed it emma thank you very much and i hope people have enjoyed listening to us as well thank you so much for listening to this episode of the wheelchair activist with emma lewell buck mp for south shields I found listening to Emma's experience as a disabled MP so interesting, and I really hope that you did too. I want to remind you that we do have a GoFundMe set up for this podcast. We are 100% committed to accessibility here at The Wheelchair Activist, and we want to make sure that every bit of content is inclusive and accessible to all. Every donation allows us to continue doing this work which includes captioning each and every episode and making it available on YouTube. Thank you so, so much to everyone who has donated so far and has allowed us to continue making this amazing podcast. Please give this podcast a share far and wide so everyone can enjoy the amazing content. This podcast has been hosted by me, Emma Vogelman, produced by me and Isabel Anderson, and edited by Joe Tapper. Thank you so much for listening, and I can't wait to see you in the next one.